It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Isabel about her chronic illness journey. I was introduced to Isabel through TikTok when I found her fantastic series called The Ramp of Approval. In it, she visits various venues in London and rates them for their accessibility. I was immediately drawn to her content because it is fun wheelchair content, and I think the world needs more of that. Content that shows Isabel out and about having fun, meeting with friends, and navigating the world in a wheelchair. I was super excited that Isabel agreed to come on the show, and as you'll hear as we start the conversation, I didn't actually know what her major pain is. And I was shocked as the conversation unfolded because it is so similar to mine. Her illness has haunted her throughout her life. She's had flare-ups where she was bed-bound for years at a time, and then it would mysteriously get better and she'd be out and about living her life, but always with the specter of this illness returning. She's been diagnosed with many things, myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome, small fiber neuropathy, a severe case of POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, vestibular migraines, and more. But right now, Isabel is in a place where she is focusing on quality of life and finding accessible ways to live her life now. Isabel is an absolute delight to talk to. I had so much fun in this conversation. I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you today, and we'll get to it in just a few minutes. I wanted to let you all know that there will be no episode of the podcast coming out next week. We're just right in the midst of the holiday season, and there's so much happening. I'm going to give myself a week off to spend time with family. So next week is a great opportunity to catch up on any episodes you have not yet listened to on the podcast feed. I'm always amazed at every single guest we have and their stories that they share. I think that there's something worthwhile to learn or empathize with in every single episode of the podcast feed. But I'll be back the week after with a brand new episode. I got a very generous donation this week from Danielle, one of our amazing supportive listeners and previous guest on the podcast. She sent in a donation of $50 through PayPal and said, happy holidays to you and your family. You are so appreciated. Danielle, thank you so, so much. Your continued support always amazes me and I appreciate it so much. I got an email from Melanie about our recent episode with Kristen discussing acromegaly. It reads, Hi, Jesse. I'm Mel from Kristen's story. I just finished listening to her story on the podcast. I want to thank you for holding special space for beautiful soul sister to share her experience, strength, and hope about her journey with acromegaly. I want to also thank you for the platform you have created through your podcast. Your loving kindness and your truth are profound. Be well, Melanie. Melanie, thank you so much for reaching out and thank you for being such an amazing support to Kristen. She talked a lot about her community of support in her episode, so I know how much she values you and your friendship, and it really meant a lot to hear from you. I also got some great feedback on last week's episode with Chanda, founder of the Chanda Center for Health. My May May left us a comment on both Instagram and TikTok that reads, my favorite discussion so far. She's so capable and a quick-witted person. Hope my English is okay. Greetings from Finland. Thank you so much for your listenership and your comment. I'm amazed that we have a listener in Finland. That's so exciting. Chronic illness and disability are truly global experiences. And even though they involve so much pain and hardship, it is something that can truly bring us together. 
We got another comment on TikTok from LC on Chanda's episode, and it reads, Chanda, her sister Crystal was my first yoga teacher for ages and inspired my path to become a physical therapist. The work they do is beyond everything ever. LC, thank you for your comment. That is a very fun connection. I also have to thank whoever it was that signed up this week on Rare Patient Voice. I very much appreciate that. Rare Patient Voice is an amazing program where you can sign up to participate in research studies and surveys and also support this podcast at the same time. After you sign up, if you are selected to participate in a study or a survey, you will be paid an average of $120 an hour per your time. If you sign up using our affiliate link, you will also be supporting this podcast while you sign up. That link is rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can find it in the show notes of this episode. Just a couple more thank yous to share. (laughs) Lots of thank yous this week. Uh, Of course, thank you to our listeners supporting this podcast on Patreon. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Patreon is one of the best ways to support this show directly with monthly financial contributions. You'll gain access to monthly bonus episodes, special recognition on the show, and even gifts when you sign up. You can learn more at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. And my last thank you for the week goes out to the Stimpunks Foundation, because this episode of Major Pain is supported by a creator grant from the Stimpunks Foundation. The Stimpunks are supporting neurodivergent and disabled individuals directly, both with creator grants and mutual aid grants. I urge you to check them out if you are in need of support, stimpunks.org. I'll remind you, as always, that my guests and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any medical action based on what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic episode with Isabel about her chronic illness journey. Isabel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on it. Yes, I'm thrilled that we are talking today. You're someone that I follow on TikTok, and I love your content, and I have a good sense of your personality and, you know, really wanted to talk to you, but I actually don't even know what your major pain is, so I'm excited to find that out as well. All I know is that you use a wheelchair, and I was a wheelchair user for about two years during my mystery illness process. And that's why I love your content so much, because it's all about accessibility and sort of raiding the accessibility of different places uh, in your hometown of London, which is so much fun to see. And you just have such a great bubbly personality. And, you know, it's so much fun. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you today, because I just felt like it was going to be a good time. So excited to have you on the show and really excited to get to know you today. I'm really pleased that you uh, enjoy the TikTok content. Um, it definitely still feels a bit of a alien world to me. but. Um, I also really enjoyed, um, I listened to an episode of your podcast where you were speaking about when you were using a wheelchair, and I think we really align in our experience. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I really enjoyed hearing that. I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, what? it's still really strange for me to talk about using the wheelchair in the past tense, because it's almost been a year now where I have barely needed it since getting on medication and finding a diagnosis, which is still something that I can't believe is really even happening. <laughs> yeah, that's um, so great. I'm so happy for you. That's like so great to sort of, you know, experience any progress I think is is huge. Yeah, absolutely. But I actually sometimes even miss using the wheelchair because it was such a great thing in my life. You know, when I was uh, hardly mobile, it gave me so much of my life back. 
And I ended up getting this really nice wheelchair that was so comfortable and fun to use. And it became this like great point of joy in my life. And to not need it anymore is great. Obviously, you know, to be able to to have some functionality back is great. But I really learned that I could live a happy, productive life in a wheelchair. And that was, you know, a revelation for me at the time. Yeah, I agree. I've had a similar revelation where um, obviously we'll get into it, but I had a a chapter of being a wheelchair user when I was a teenager. Mm. And that was very different for me. That felt like a sort of, I felt a lot of shame and I couldn't really get my head around it and I couldn't access any sort of representation. Um, I found it so difficult. I've had to put quite a bit of work in to get to the point where I'm at now, but now my wheelchair to me represents freedom mm. and like, yeah, I love it. But three years ago, it was so hard, but I think um, I've I've come a long way and I've totally done a 180 or a 360, depending on which is the full circle. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I like, I feel so empowered by it because either I can be housebound and that's my life or I adapt and I use a wheelchair and then I can experience a sort of new version of life. So yeah, it's been a real journey with the wheelchair, but I'm finally in a position where I'm like embracing it. And I mm. think that's the sole reason why I started doing the TikToks because I seeked out representation through social media because it's something that you can't often find in mainstream media or like in the on TV and stuff. So I kind of was able to gain so much from seeing other people be openly disabled online and sort of hearing about their experiences made me find the similarities. I could sort of then see that I wasn't to blame. It was ableism and other people mm. that were the issue, not me and my disability. So now I'm trying to pay it forward by making my silly little videos. I would rec recommend using a wheelchair to anybody that struggles to get out and about because I think you can do so much more if you can be open to it. Absolutely. Well said. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and now I'm so curious to get into your story as well. But before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. So Isabel, why don't you tell us about yourself? Um, so as we've already established, my name is Isabel. I am from the UK. I grew up on the south coast of England um, in a county called Dorset, which is a very lovely part of the world. Um, I then moved to London when I was about 18, um, and that is where I still am today. I live in North London with my girlfriend and my dog, Jonathan. I work in music as a publicist. So I work with like a number of artists and bands. It's a job that's constantly evolving. It's really hard to sort of define, but basically I help them tell their story. I work towards building um, sort of awareness and like a press profile that will help be a ingredient in them achieving a long and fruitful music career, which mm. I would say is by no means easy to do, <laughs> is very difficult, but I do get a lot of job satisfaction. It's a job that little do my artists know, I mostly do lying down. So <laughs> I was sending a lot of emails with a double chin, but no one would know. So <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So interesting. What do you do for fun? What are you nerdy for? Well, I'm a fan of music as well as working in music. So that sort of, um, that is a big passion of mine. Uh, so I like going to see live music, see artists and stuff. I do enjoy partaking in art. I would say I'm definitely somebody that's more creative than an academic. What else? That's a really hard question, actually. What are my hobbies as an adult? I think a lot of them have fallen by the wayside, unfortunately. 
to be brutally honest, I love watching trashy TV. Um, <laughs> that for me is almost a form of meditation. I think it just stops all the thoughts and then I'm just staring. Um, yeah. And at the moment, I am very busy with Married at First Sight and Big Brother. So I'm spinning a lot of plates over here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge Survivor nerd. Survivor oh, is great. like, it's yeah. like Big Brother on an island, I guess. But yeah, I, I love trashy TV. During the pandemic, I watched a lot of Love Island. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's always on. They have a summer one, a winter one, yeah. you know. It got me through some dark days. You see that sense of routine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, well, let's get into your story. And this is what I've been dying to ask you because I don't know the answer. So, Isabel, what is your major pain? Drum roll. Um, I hope it's not going to be disappointing. Um, so, basically, what I tend to say is POTS is the epicenter of all mm. of my issues. But I've been led to believe that the driving force is small fiber neuropathy. Really? Which I understand. I'm not the only one in the room with it. You're kidding. No, I was just diagnosed with that. And, oh, no, yeah. and now that's not disappointing at all. <laughs> 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 that's fascinating do you know for sure that you have that or are you sort of exploring that possibility right now so it's in the bag it's locked and loaded i had the procedure where i had like small needles in my feet and they sent sort of electrical currents oh yeah as the test unfolded it was all like really bizarre but they were able to tell me on the day that uh the results were abnormal which I would say, um, and I think it's like probably quite relatable to anybody that's had a long history of sort of mysterious illnesses, that when you have a test that comes back ab abnormal, it's like, great, yes, we're onto something here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, because so often I've gone to, you know, a hospital appointment or a doctor and I felt so horrendous. And then I have test results. And it's so unbelievable to me that they've come back normal because when I've like been to have tests and stuff, I feel like I felt like absolute shit. Like I've been shut out and ran over mm. and I'm expecting everything to come back. Terrible results. Yeah. And everybody sort of rush around me and be like, we can't believe you've been existing this unwell. <laughs> and then they come in and they're like, yeah, you're fine. I know. So like to get the abnormal tests, I think is like, okay, well, you actually are finally doing the correct tests for the situation that I'm in. So wow. it was it was quite good. And then um when I had saw my consultant to sort of discuss the results and he revealed the diagnosis of small fiber neuropathy, I was like, okay, great. What now? And then it was kind of yeah, nothing. So it was like, yeah, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Wow. Um, I don't feel like the diagnosis has hugely changed anything for me, but it's good to have it anyway. I've got it in the yeah. bag. Yeah, absolutely. Well the good I mean, I, th this, I'm speechless. I have so much to say that I can't say anything at all. That We're right in my wheelhouse here. I have this diagnosis. I know a lot about small fiber neuropathy. I, wanted, I, you know, I have things to say that I will wait until later to say because I want to hear more of your story first. Um, but, okay, let's define your diagnoses for our listeners who may be a little less than familiar. Let's start with POTS. What is POTS? So POT stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And the issues arise, the, the postural bit sort of means that it's when you're upright. It's a situation where the autonomic system, there's like a malfunction when you stand. So the autonomic system controls all the things that I like to ca call the sort of cruise control uh, settings in the body. So like the heart rate, the blood pressure, 
digestion, uh, temperature control, I think like sweating, uh, like bladder functions, things like that, that you shouldn't really be aware of. Your body just takes care of business. But in the case of POTS, the driver's checked out and it's going on some sort of runaway ghost train. <laughs> um, so when I stand, for me personally, my heart rate just goes higher and higher and higher and my blood pressure goes lower and lower. So if I was to continue to stand, I would pass out. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's sort of the what's going on behind the scenes with POTS. Um, and small fibroneuropathy, I think, is an issue, or maybe you're going to be able to explain this better, actually, but it's the small fibres or like the little nerves. And when my doctor was describing it to me, he was saying, you know, your small fibres, your little nerves. I thought he was just being patronising because I'm a girl. <laughs> I thought he was like, oh, you <laughs> There's something wrong with your little nerves. <laughs> but, it <is. laughs> but it is, in fact, it's the small fibres and the small nerves that control the autonomic system. So I think there's either they are working incorrectly or they're not working. I think the POTS is like a symptom of the small fibre neuropathy. That is what how I would describe it, but I don't know how accurate that is. Yeah, I mean, they are both forms of dysautonomia. So you have two forms of dysautonomia overlapping. And I was tested for yeah. POTS and that came back negative. But the POTS testing is actually what first led us down the road of discovering that I had small fiber neuropathy because it was part of a full dysautonomia panel. Uh, and I actually had the punch biopsy where they take pieces of your skin and look at them under a microscope and they look Ooh. at your, your tiny fibers. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then they can see that they're actually being damaged. For me, the theory is that I've been diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome, which is releasing chemicals into my body all the time. It's like a dysfunction of my mast cells, which were involved in immune, immune and allergic responses. Everybody has mast cells and they're always supposed to be releasing chemicals if you get a bug bite or something like that. But for me, they're just releasing chemicals all day, every day. And it started to damage my autonomic nervous system causing small fiber neuropathy, causing a lot of pain and causing my legs to just shut off. Mm. Yeah, once we got my mast cells under control, my small fiber neuropathy started to get better as well. So my understanding about small fiber neuropathy is that you really want to find the root cause of what's causing small fiber neuropathy. It can be idiopathic and just happen, yeah. but it can also be caused by something else. And the only real way to treat it is to treat the root cause. And it's also one of those like poorly understood diseases that a lot of doctors don't even know exist. So is that something they've talked yeah. about with you is like trying to uncover a root cause? So um, I think in a dream world, I personally would love to uncover a root cause. Um, but so I did actually get a diagnosis of mast cell activation really? uh, syndrome. However, and I was like, yay, okay, we're on a roll. I know that it's really hard to test for. But I had a sort of a consultation over the phone and um, he said, yeah, you've got Marcel activation. And I was like, OK, so I like started taking a number of the sort of medications um, and I did the diet, which was challenging, mm. but I stuck to it. But I had absolutely zero improvement. So mm. I think I'm going to undiagnose myself with Marcel because I don't think that I do because from what I understand, and particularly like hearing you speak about your experience, that really does sort of like solidify the fact that I think if I did have it, I would have responded to the treatment. 
I did the diet for ages. Yeah. Um, and if anything, I just felt malnourished. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the diet is I rough. Felt, <laughs> yeah. I felt a lot worse by the end. But at the beginning, I was like really excited and I would happily do the diet forever if it even improved me by 10%. But unfortunately, mm. um, yeah, it didn't really do anything. So at least we can rule that out, I suppose. Um, I think in terms of like a root cause, my personal theory is maybe something autoimmune is going on because my issues arose. It started with a virus and oh. um, I've had a few, every sort of huge relapse that I've had has been triggered by, you know, the flu or like a virus or COVID more recently. Um, so I think it's something to do with that. But yeah, I'm not really sure. My original diagnosis uh, was ME. Yeah. I don't know where that ends and the pot starts. Like, I've no idea if I would still be somebody that would be diagnosed with ME or if the pots is like instead of that. I also think that I have endless Danlos, which I know is mm -hmm. like very common in people with POTS. Um, however, I can't sort of generate any interest from anyone in actually diagnosing me with that. But I think that I do have that. But the sort of the general vibe from doctors is um, it's very hard to diagnose and nothing would necessarily change for you if we did diagnose you with that. But oh, yeah. I think I do because I'm hypermobile. I've got very stretchy skin. Already, I'm selling myself as someone that's great at a party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I bruise really easily, and I think it would explain, you know, it would sort of fall in line with my other kind of symptoms and stuff. So I don't know if that would that would be classed as like a cause, but that is a theory that I have. Yeah, these are all really good theories. Absolutely. You know, ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome which sort of like your body goes into chronic illness state after having a viral infection. Yeah, that sounds very much like a likely cause if you're saying that all this starts after a viral infection or gets worse after COVID, something like that. And yeah, yeah. we've done some really great episodes on this podcast about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. The very first episode we did about it was with Morgan talking about the EDS triad, which is POTS, MCAS, and EDS. POTS and EDS absolutely, absolutely go together. MCAS often is in the mix. I don't know about small fiber neuropathy with EDS. Very possible. Because uh, when you have a connective tissue disease, you know, dysautonomia very much goes hand in hand. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's something that I'd be interested to hear from our listeners about if there is a link between small fiber neuropathy and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I know these are also developing areas of science. There is an explosion of EDS happening right now. I listened to a fascinating podcast about that, talking about the lifestyle changes that may be triggering this, you know, sort of genetic mutation to happen in our society, which is really interesting, yeah. you know, evolution at work. But yeah, I also know exactly what it feels like to be in this complex medical situation, to want to have things come back wrong so that you can at least know what's going on, but not be able to get doctors to really engage with you sometimes because it's just too complicated and they're too busy. And all of this stuff is so little known and it just leaves you feeling like you don't matter to them. And it's extremely painful. So what do your symptoms feel like? How does this present in your life? So if I give like a bit of a run through of the sort of uh, the day-to-day -day symptoms, I'll reel off a bit of a list um, and hopefully that will help kind of build up a picture. So 
lots and lots of symptoms but i would say there's like if i categorize them as like you know the heavy rotation maybe a list symptoms i would say fatigue is really a flagship symptom for me that is something that i think maybe there's like slightly more awareness around it now like people seem to understand that fatigue can be really debilitating but i think for a long time people quickly mm. want to sort of share their experience of being tired after you know an all-nighter or whatever and it's <laughs> yeah it's not the same um <laughs> even though that's still valid you know um it's like yeah it's just not the same so when i wake up my sleep is like not refreshing whatsoever so when i wake up i sort of feel like i'm sort of being suffocated by fatigue to try and like pull myself around when my alarm clock goes off is like climbing up a mountain um so it's definitely worse in the mornings and i have to rely heavily on caffeine to just sort of break the spell of the sleep because um yeah i feel extremely exhausted i would describe it as the sort of sort of fatigue that you get when you have the flu so like if you were to just lie down time would just go by and you wouldn't be bored because you're just so tired and you're just like happy to be lying motionless but obviously i have to try and still you know get things done um and some days are worse than others but i would say that is very much when i have done too much that's the first thing that i feel is like additional fatigue mm -hmm. um and the irony is is that i also have insomnia mm. so as much as i feel so exhausted all the time i also can't sleep at night um but i take amitriptyline um which uh, if i'm pronouncing that correctly mm -hmm. Um, which really does help me sleep. So that gets me to sleep. And then um, once I'm sort of medicated, I'm like, I'm okay to sleep. But without that, I would just like be awake all night. So I'm fortunate that that does kind of work for me. But on the times where I've like forgotten to take it and not realized, I'm like, it's like 4am and I'm thinking like, why aren't I asleep? I don't understand. And then I'll think like, oh no, I didn't actually take it. So that for me just hammers home that it is the tablets that make me sleep. Um, so vestibular migraines, I would say, are also something that are always waiting around the corner for me. They can be brought on by if I move my head around too much or if I see something like moving. It's almost like, I guess, like a motion sickness type thing. When I like I'm throwing a ball for my dog, I'll close my eyes while I'm throwing the ball, because if I didn't, it will bring on a migraine. I would say I get a couple of them a week. And that's with me avoiding doing the things that bring them on. So if I was to like sit on my stool that I sit on when I cook a meal, like looking at the cupboards and like, you know, moving my head around to do that, that will bring on a migraine. And also if I stand up for too long, um, that also brings on the migraine. So I think also the vestibular migraines are linked to my dizziness. So I generally feel like very, very dizzy. Um, and even in my dreams, I'm like swirling around. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's yeah. really weird. And I think it's when I sleep on my back, I get these like horrible dreams where I'm like dragging myself around and everything's swirling. It's like really horrible. Um, but yeah, so I'm like very dizzy and like I have quite sort of poor balance, which I think also I've been told is due to the vestibular migraines because apparently you can have the sort of symptoms of them even if you don't have the headache you can get the sort of dizziness and like lack of balance. Um, and when I do have the sort of full blown migraine, I just have to be in the dark and it's like a crushing headache, but it is improved by ice, which segues us on quite nicely to the small fiber neuropathy flagship symptom in my mind is like burning hands and burning feet. I don't know if you get that. Yeah. Yeah. That like tingly burny pain. 
And and for me, it's yeah. like very much touch dependent. Like when I'm having a flare up, if someone touches me, I like scream. <laughs> wow. So I don't get so much like pain. It's mm. for me. But then I was thinking about it. I was thinking maybe it is pain. It's like, so I get like a creeping redness. It will like stop on like a thumb mm. or like a finger and it will sort of, I can see it sort of moving. Really? And my hands are like, I don't know how uh, much awareness you have around King Charles and his big red sausage fingers. <laughs> None. Um, that was my introduction (laughs) (laughs) Um, but he has like big red sausage fingers and that's what my hands go like Um, Mm. and it usually happens weirdly like in the evening it will just sort of happen but doesn't seem to really happen in the day which is weird and same with my feet and occasionally my nose will go red and be burning and I'll get it on like my arms or something and you can like physically see the patch of like burning red skin wow and I would describe it as like sunburn, but like sort of two or three layers deep. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so bizarre. Um, but I imagine that's the nerve damage, perhaps the small fiber damage. Yeah, it's so when you have like this many things happening at once, and we've already, you know, you've already confirmed small fiber neuropathy and POTS, and who knows like how many things are happening at the same time. You talked about MCAS potentially being a, a part of the picture. But how do you parse through like what is causing what, you know, like the dizziness? Is it vestibular migraines? Is it POTS? It's almost impossible to parse all those things out into their, you know, little segmented areas where we know which symptoms are which diagnosis because it's all happening to one person in one body. How do you know? Sometimes you can't. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes you can never know. Or like, is it a side effect of a medication? Uh, the possibilities are truly endless. <laughs> so obviously we know about the tachycardia when I stand yeah. and the lower. So I think my resting sort of blood pressure is pretty low and then, but not nothing crazy. And I think it's always been quite low, but then when I stand, it does go very low. Yeah. Um, I think that's very classic POTS and yeah. along with that also blood pooling. So mm-hmm. any sort of limb that's hanging down, even if I'm sat, my blood will all go into my legs and they will go a quite unfashionable purple color um (laughs) which is you know it's a conversation starter yeah lack of sort of stamina in terms of doing something and then the effect afterwards so i sort of feel like my energy and my symptoms are like a sand timer and when i do any activity the sand time is flipped over and then the energy is just sort of gushing through and depending on the activity, you know, it can gush through quicker or slower. So if I'm sort of sat having a chat with a friend, that's not too taxing for me. I might not feel too bad afterwards, but if I was to go out using my wheelchair for like a meal or something, that's really going to pull the energy down. And if I was to go somewhere and like, you know, have quite a wild night and would be waving my arms in the air, that's yeah, the sand's really rushing through. Yeah. Um, and the more, I guess the more I, exert myself the longer it will take for me to recover so when I plan my time if I'm sort of planning to see someone I have to make sure that I have a few days before where I'm not doing anything so I know I'll be well enough to do it and then I have to give myself like a a clear run of a few days afterwards depending on how if it's something big I have to give myself a week or so to ensure that I have time to like recover. Yeah. If I was to pack in more commitments, I'm just going to have to cancel them because I know I'm like not going to be well enough. Um, so there's a lot of sort of time management going behind the scenes. I'd say that's like my main symptoms. Yeah. And then the ones that are sort of more 
um, more ad hoc. Um, I would say nausea. Uh, so I feel quite sick a lot of the time and I'll have spells where I feel extremely sick all the time and no appetite. And then I'll have times where that isn't an issue at all. So last week when I was uh, talking on um, a couple of meetings, every time I spoke, I just I felt like I wanted to gag. I had to keep um, stopping. So that's like a new thing that seems to be happening recently, um, which is, you know, bizarre sort of temperature control. So when I'm when I have exerted myself a bit, I'm like really cold and shivery and I just like can't warm up. Mm. Um, and then also if I was to stand, I would start sweating like as the sort of symptoms all uh, unfold upon standing. Less so an issue for me on a day-to-day basis, but sort of brain fog. I don't think I get that too badly, but quite often I just can't quite concentrate or I end up speaking backwards or I like totally forget things. Um, so I do have systems in place to ensure that that doesn't really impact huge errors uh, in my personal or professional life. But that is definitely something that I think I've got used to now and isn't quite so bad. But it is definitely like something that it does sort of impact me. And then joint pain and like muscle cramps. I also can't really tolerate heat um, when the heating's on, even though sometimes I'm cold and I do want to warm up. Um, I guess maybe that's bringing up my heart rate or causing me issues in that sense. But yeah, I don't think I can really tolerate heat, particularly sort of artificial heat, like heating. Yeah, I really struggle in that sort of environment. It makes me feel like really, really faint. Yeah, a lot of this sounds so familiar to me. You know, things that I've lived through or very similar to things that I've talked to other people about with, you know, like with with mast cell disorder and chronic fatigue syndrome, POTS, you know, a lot of things that permeate the chronic illness community where a lot of us really experience a lot of these type of you know brain fog temperature dysregulation issues the exhaustion and it's so interesting because these things are so ubiquitous but the way that we get at trying to help everyone is so different from person to person the cause of all of it might be completely different from person to person and it's just part of this like seemingly impossible puzzle of how do i find improvement living inside of this maelstrom of issues yeah, it's, it's like a real mindful, and I think it is a game of trial and error, which can be a real long game, I think, yeah. the sort of the trial and error journey. Um, I think I try and just do what I can to kind of keep them at bay. I try not to do things that are going to flare up certain symptoms, um, but also at the same time, it's hard because sometimes things are unavoidable. I basically feel like if I was to lie down very still, I'd probably feel okay, but sometimes flaring up the symptoms is worth it to have a have a good time even though mm. the payback is always waiting in the wings yeah you gotta live yeah exactly exactly and i guess yeah. i'm fortunate that i'm at a level now where my recovery rate from doing things is not as catastrophic as what it was like one or two years ago so you know back then i would go out for an hour or so and i'd be sort of out of action for a month i couldn't think about leaving the house for like a month or so and that was really tough but i found that if I sort of quit while I'm ahead and I have shorter trips out and like shorter activities, I can maybe do it again in a week. And that builds up a nicer quality of life because you've all got something to look forward to um, rather than sort of going out for the first time in ages and then feeling like you can't tear yourself away because you haven't been out in so long and you know you're not going to be out again in, you know, a month for another yeah. month. So yeah, it's very all frustrating. Sort of self-control and rationing, I uh, think. Yeah, I know it's. <laughs> Horrible choices that that we have to make on a continual basis. It's exhausting. Yeah, no, it is. But I would love to 
go back to the beginning of your journey and talk through this and hear, you know, did this start with a viral infection and when was that? So it did indeed start with a viral infection and it was a very long time ago now. So I was about, yeah, I was nine years old when I first got ill. And, you know, you might think that doesn't, that wasn't that long ago for you. Um, but no, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so that was about uh, 26 years ago. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, real long time ago. Um I'm 30, I've just turned 35 to save the maths there for anybody that's trying to figure it out. Um, so I would say my early childhood, I was like really, really active, really sporty, like really full of life. I was like, you know, just throwing everything at the wall, having a great life. And then suddenly out of nowhere, I just was sort of struck down by this uh, virus type thing. It's quite hazy now looking back because obviously it was, you know, ultimately a million years ago. But um, I just remember it was sort of like quite sudden in the effect that it had on me. So I just like suddenly didn't have the energy to get out of bed. And then I think after the virus sort of passed, I then had a number of other illnesses sort of like in quick succession. So I had like, a, I think I had a kidney infection. I had a number of like courses of antibiotics and stuff. But from that point, I just never really recovered. Mm. Um, and I think... Um, it's hard to like remember too much about it, but it was just all a mystery. And it was like, I think particularly back then, you know, that there was, there wasn't even the internet back then. I mean, this was 1998. So that is a really long time ago. So there wasn't even, um, really a means for anybody to do their own research if they weren't getting sort of taken seriously with medical professionals. So I think it was like a really difficult time to kind of really figure out what was going on with me. But I did eventually get a diagnosis of ME. I was diagnosed by a pediatrician sort of consultant. Um, and there wasn't loads of options in terms of treatment. It was sort of like, good luck. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see what happens. Um, and I think I had quite a substantial amount of time off school. And then maybe after a year or so, I went back to school, but I only did morning lessons. So I had to be really careful that I didn't overdo things because then I would be, I would become totally inactive and not be able to like sort of tolerate doing anything. So something that's been a big issue for me and still is to this day is the after effects of like overexerting myself Yeah, and overexerting can mean different things. So there's been times in my life where overexerting is like walking really far. And there's been other times in my life where like um, standing to clean my teeth is overexerting myself. So I had to learn quite quickly that I needed to pace myself. And that's what I did for, um, I would say, I guess like three or so years I was attending school like part-time and each year each sort of one of those three years I would increase things a little bit and I think by the time I was 13 I was maybe doing like two full days at school um and the rest mornings and then just as things were going sort of starting to improve um I got struck down with the flu um and it was quite a bad bout because I remember a friend of mine had it as well um and from that point that was absolute rock bottom that just mm. sort of undid all the progress and then from 13 so at 13 I had to leave school like completely and I entered the bedridden chapter which is probably the boringest chapter of uh, my life <laughs> but it was um yeah I basically from 13 to I would say about 17 I was pretty much bedridden 
um couldn't really tolerate much light sort of no energy constantly in pain with like various you know joints and headaches and things couldn't really tolerate anything and just sort of had to get through like one day at a time just thinking like okay I've got through today onto tomorrow and that went on for a number of years and occasionally I would make it out the house and that's when the wheelchair came into my life the first time around so I would go out maybe like a couple of times a year in a wheelchair which is it seems crazy now to think back to that because it was such a long period of time where I was just totally uh, sort of incapacitated. But I think my young age, I had like a sort of naive optimism that I absolutely would not have now. But I remember when I speak to my friends, I'd be like, oh, you know, next month when I'm better. And obviously that just went on and on and on, which Mm. is like so sad to think about. But, you know, I did reach a point where I recovered uh, to an extent. So, yeah, I did make it through, but that was a like a really difficult time. And in fact, I think it's all kind of like a bit of a blur because I think, well, one, nothing happened. I was just in a room for four years, <laughs> <laughs> but also it was a really weird time. And I think how I felt as somebody who, when I would present my situation, I've always found it really hard to talk about. And I always felt like, okay, I've got one chance to describe my illness and then people are probably not going to believe me. And so I'd always like crumble quite quickly and I would just sort of like, you know, choke out, oh, I I get tired easily, which is terrible PR for an illness that is a lot more than just tiredness. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think I'm a much better publicist than that that now. But um, yeah, I think um, I just felt the judgment that people would sort of greet you with if you have a sort of mysterious illness was um I always found that really really tough because there was nothing I wanted more than to recover or not even recover just to enjoy some of the things that I used to enjoy doing and the idea that people would sort of jump to the conclusions that perhaps I'm lazy or making it up made it really embarrassing for me to tell people because I didn't want them to jump to those conclusions and I think I've only just unpicked that sort of in more recent years when I've had this resurgence of illness. But yeah, I think those years were really tough, but I did get through them. And then I think when I was about sort of 17, something shifted and it's very much a sort of chicken and the egg situation where I'll never know if my condition improved. So I was able to slowly increase activity or if I slowly increased activity and that allowed my condition to improve. But I honestly think that I naturally made a small improvement and that allowed me to then think, okay, well, you know, I've got this tiny bit of wiggle room. How am I going to like build it up? And I had to do it almost like, obviously I have had, I have very supportive family and um, a lovely group of friends Um, who were supportive but in terms of sort of um, medical support um, and like medical professionals and advice I like totally slipped through the net I basically had to sort of formulate a recovery plan on my own um, because I think at that point I was too old to see the pediatrician that had diagnosed me but I was too young to access the ME services because they started at 18. So I guess I must have just like read some stuff online. And at the beginning, I started by 
walking out of the front door and taking two steps and then going back to bed. Mm. And then each week I would add in like literally one or two steps. And even though that didn't really like feel like progress, the fact that I was adding one more step in, it literally was progress. And then I just kept at that for months. And I was like, then I was walking to the end of the drive. Then I was walking to the post box. Um, and then my recovery did sort of kind of snowball from that point. So it really worked for me. But I think, especially now, living with the sort of level of illness that I'm at now, I think that I had begun to recover organically. And that is what allowed me to build up my activity. And I sort of wonder if when you're a teenager and you, your body's like got hormones and things like that, I wonder if that's what was holding me back. And then when I was a little bit older and perhaps there was less going on in my body, maybe that then, I don't know, maybe it pulled itself together and it managed to sort of find capacity to kind of improve. But yeah, I've, I've, I don't really know. I started going out in the wheelchair more frequently. I would go out for like rides in the car. And then I was, I started um, sort of, you know, maybe if there wasn't much walking involved, I would go without the wheelchair and it just slowly sort of kept improving. And then I got to the point where I was like, I might actually be able to think about what I want to do with my life. Mm. And I, I had no idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously I didn't have any, I didn't have any education from the age of, 12 or 13 so quite a blank canvas in terms of um possibilities but luckily i've always had a interest in art and i've always been like been a big fan of sort of drawing and painting and stuff like that and my family encouraged me to consider pursuing that and so i started doing like a little art class on a tuesday night and i think when you don't experience school life it's so hard to like back yourself and feel confident about anything and your abilities because you've never like you don't have the tests to prove that you're good at anything so I think it's definitely been like a quite a long game in terms of like building my confidence up to think that maybe I could be good at something or like maybe you know I could pursue a, a career in something but I just sort of thought okay well let's go for it I started applying for art college, art school. A lot of them you needed to have qualifications in order to be considered, but there was like a couple that said they would take people on portfolio um, if it was good enough. So then I just really got to work and I made a portfolio. And then I got accepted to an art school in London. And when I accepted the offer, I was like, am I going to be well enough to do this? I've got no idea. But I thought, well, I'll say yes now. And when it rolls around in a few months, I'll deal with it then. By the time it came around, I was like, I've got to go for it. Then for the next couple of years, I had to be really careful in terms of how much I did. You know, I've never been able to tolerate exercise or anything like that, but I did sort of get by okay. And I was just like, so I was on cloud nine to go from, you know, being bedridden, having no life to then going and studying something that is like ultimately just fun. Um, in my mind, yeah, it was really great. And I, because I moved away, I sort of felt like I'd left that chapter of myself behind a little bit. And my story that I told people was very, very positive. It was like, oh, I had this happen and now I'm, you know, walking around. And it, it was like a really positive story. And I would love to say that it ends positively, but unfortunately, you know, due to absolutely zero popular demand, it did sort of come back. So 
Um, I think I was okay for two or three years. Um, and then it just started coming back. And I um, don't think I could identify a particular trigger. Like I, I don't think I had a particular virus or anything, but I just kept, I was just really struggling with like just getting out and moving around and all the same sort of symptoms sort of rid that ugly head. Um, and I kept pushing against it um, mm. for about six months. And the the backlash was just getting worse and worse and worse. And then eventually I had to drop out of my second year of uni, I think. I was about to go into my third year of uni and I had to just drop out. And then I had another year where I was very, very restricted and I had to um, mostly just exist at home. Um, but it was slightly different because I was now sort of living an adult life. So I didn't have my mum running up and down the stairs with meals for me anymore um, because I was, you know, I guess technically an adult. So I had a year out of uni and just tried to sort of do everything that I could. And I went back to the doctors at that point and I said, you know, I haven't seen a doctor about my ME for years. Surely things have moved on a bit. Do you have any treatments that you can like potentially suggest? Um, and they said, no, not really, but you can see a psychiatrist if you want. Mm. And I'm all for people seeing psychiatrists if it's the right course of treatment. But I was like, why would that be the right course of treatment for something that I'm only really experiencing physical symptoms for? So I said, no, thanks. I'll see you <laughs> later. But then I went crawling back because I was just absolutely desperate. I was like, do you know what? If you think it's going to help, great. Like, sign me up. So it actually wasn't too bad. I had CBT mm. with a physiotherapist. Um, and basically, she just guided me through the sort of pacing process, which was very similar to what I'd done previously. Um, just sort of like putting goals down and then building towards them. And I remember at the time, my goals were like walk. My ultimate goal was to walk to the mini Tesco, which I don't know if you have Tesco in America. I don't think that you do, but it is a supermarket. So that was my goal, just to make it to like the local shop. Eventually, I did. And then my recovery kind of resurged. And then I was kind of doing okay. I graduated uni. Then the task was to find a job that would take me, bearing in mind I probably couldn't work full-time in an office. I mean, it's an issue that everybody has. Um, you know, you graduate and you, you know, have picked your dream kind of thing to study, and that doesn't necessarily equate dream job at the end of it. So I don't think that there's a scenario where anybody cruises through and then finds their ideal job. But so I'd studied graphic design. And then I freelanced for a bit, which I felt was going to be the most ideal for my health because obviously I could do it from home. So that felt workable. And I thought, do you know what? Maybe I can make this work. But then it was just really hard not having a consistent income. So I started to apply for jobs and I just couldn't basically give, get anybody to give me a chance. I think um, I tried a couple of different techniques, like not mentioning the illness, receiving the job offer, revealing the illness and then it would be retracted. Mm. And I, I honestly don't think that that would happen now so much because I think for everything bad that COVID has done to us, I think one positive is the workplace is now a little bit more accessible. I would like to think anyway. So I experienced um, a lot of issues finding anybody to kind of give me a 
a chance and a lot of the job offers I had were retracted which I think I would say is like discrimination now I think that's what I would call it so that was really tough because obviously I'd worked so hard to get to uni and then at uni and that was a real bubble bursting moment and that went on for a couple of years it was quite a, a long period of of stressfulness and during that time I'd gone to the doctors and I said I think I've got POTS and they just said no you haven't <laughs> um, I was like okay bye my GP um, which um, is like the general practitioner so that's the doctor that you would see and then they would refer you on to whoever that's relevant just in case I think maybe they're called something different in America yeah either um, we do use GP or a PCP primary care provider okay yeah I've said like you know I'm pretty sure I've got POTS this is why and I remember her saying like you don't have pots. If you had pots, you your skin would look like chicken skin. Mm. And I was like, oh, I haven't heard that before. And I still don't think I've heard that to this day. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just couldn't really get anyone to take me seriously. And eventually, I think I did have some monitoring on my heart, like the 24-hour thing. And when they looked at the results, they said, you know, we can see that you are having tachycardia, but we don't know why. Mm. So come back if you're if you start collapsing. So I just couldn't, and I was like, well, that might be too late then. Um, but I felt at that point, I felt convinced that I had POTS and a lot of people that I knew that had ME had received the POTS diagnosis. So I was convinced that that's what I had. And then in terms of work, that's when I started working in music because I was very fortunate that a friend of mine just decided to take a chance on me based on my enthusiasm and no experience working in music except for a lifelong love of it. And that's the job that I still do today. So obviously, I'm so grateful that he did give me that chance because I think I had a lot of potential. And all through my life, I've never really had a chance to explore that because of the illness barriers and then discrimination and stuff. So that's really great. And then obviously, I did get my POTS diagnosis. I think the cardio symptoms really, really came to a head. And again, I can't pinpoint the particular cause of it but I was just like so unwell and I couldn't get out of bed. Every time I like sat up, I felt like I was going to pass out. And I just felt like my body was screaming, something's really wrong here. And I remember like ringing the non-urgent like advice line and saying like, I feel really weird. I don't know why. And I'd like counted my pulse and my sort of poor skills at counting a pulse. I was like, I think it's fine. Um, it doesn't seem particularly fast, but I feel like really weird. They said, well, you should go to urgent care. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. I thought, you know, a compromise would be I'll just stagger to the pharmacy that's around the corner. And because I felt like maybe I had low blood pressure uh, because I felt so sort of like weak and faint. And then they tested my blood pressure and then they could see that my heart was crazy. And they said, you know, you need to go to A&E, which is where I went. And then they obviously did all the tests lying down and they're like, okay, you're fine. Go and see your GP tomorrow. So then when I went back to the GP, obviously I was sat up, they did the same tests and the sort of um, blood pressure and heart rate. And I think my heart rate was still, I can't remember what it was, but I think it's like 180 or something. And it had been solidly like that for a couple of weeks. Wow. I was like really, really unwell by that point. Um, And it was really, it was quite scary because I think you just know when something's like really, really up. Um, And then the GP sent me back to A&E and then they did all the same tests again, lying down. And then they were like, you're fine. Um, 
And then they referred me to a cardiologist who then referred me to the POP specialist. It's funny because I think the hoops that you have to jump through in order to be taken seriously, and I think it's difficult for anyone, but I would say it's particularly difficult for women. Mm -hmm. And I think it's particularly difficult for women who might be wearing makeup, because I think that is like an extra sort of disguise, because I think, yeah, it's just like really, really hard to be taken seriously. And even when I'd been to the doctors and I'd explained how unwell I was and how that was that just physically going to the doctors was going to set me back like three weeks, I'd say all this. I'd get the impression that they're we're on the same page. OK, we get it. We're, we all understand it. And then they would say something like, so are you going to go back to work then after this? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, <laughs> I'm not uh, like, yeah, really like. Just when you think you've you've had like a breakthrough moment, they say something that, you know, shows that they absolutely have not grasped the situation. Mm. Um, and I remember when I saw the cardiologist who diagnosed me with POTS, he said, do you want me to refer you to a POTS specialist? You know, um, it doesn't really make any difference. Um, you know, you can try treatments if you want to, but you seem like you maybe it's not worth trying the treatments. And I was like, my life is being dominated by cr chronic illness. I'm having to like cater to it in every single life choice that I make. Of course, I want to explore the treatment options, but he obviously just had no idea sort of how unwell I was and like what I was up against and how much I've had to sort of mold my life. My illness has literally been the sort of the driving force of every decision I've ever made in my life. It's it's like been in the control center. But then I did go and see the POTS specialist eventually, and I started on midadrine, mm. um, or I don't know if that, would you say that's the correct pronunciation? Uh, yeah, yeah. I actually tried that as well for POTS when they thought I might have it, and it, I didn't yeah. have it, so it was not good for me, but my doctors pronounced it midadrine. But I think with your midadrine. accent, that sounds exactly right <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, and I would say that when I went on to midadrine, in that moment, that was life-changing. The improvement mm. was huge. Yeah. So how it works, it like compresses your blood vessels. So your blood doesn't all like sort of drop down in your legs. So I was able to tolerate standing for longer. Mm. And then that allowed me to then build up my walking. I think at that point I was like working in an office two or three times a week. And usually I would get the bus home because to get the tube is like too much walking and like steps and things. So I'd try and get the bus everywhere. But then once I started on the midadrine, I sort of went back to my old trick of building up my walking. So like each week I would get the bus stop one stop further back and then sort of fast forward, I guess, a year or two of building up. I was like walking home from work and that's, I think it was like about three miles and I was doing really, really well. I felt like really well for the first time in my life. I felt actually like, okay. And I still couldn't really tolerate exercise, but I could walk. And so, yeah, I was just literally walking at any opportunity I'd have. I'd leave work at like six and I'd get home at like nine. And my housemate would be like, cool, you're working late. And I'd be like, no, I finished at six. I've just walked home <laughs> <laughs> because I'd have to keep stopping to like sit down. Mm. But it was like so worth it. I yeah. got so much enjoyment out of it. When I was walking home from work, I would often like flash back and think like, wow, I can't believe I have this freedom. And I can't believe that I have been able to sort of build myself up to almost be, you know, I don't want to use the word normal, 
but I felt really normal. That's probably the only time that I have felt normal and I was able to like enjoy things and sort of be a bit like carefree like oh yeah okay maybe I will stay out for a bit longer and obviously I still had to be careful to a degree and if I did stay out late I would have to deal with consequences but it was all kind of fairly moderate and I wish that was the end of the story because that would be (laughs) a really positive end but unfortunately in 2020 I got COVID right at the start so Ah. sort of like March 2020 and Ever since, it's just seems to have really reactivated everything mm-hmm. in me. And now midadrine still helps, but to be honest, it helps like if we say that it helped 60% before, I would say now it helps like 5%. So it's wow. like barely touching the sides. Um, and I've explored like other medications and I'm on a sort of a, a decent selection now, but I still can't really stand for more than I would say like a minute. Um, so I'm very restricted and I would say, um, I have to spend the majority of my time horizontal. If I sit at a desk for too long, all my blood is like down in my legs and I can't concentrate properly. So going back to what I was saying earlier about doing my job sort of with a double chin lying back in bed. (laughs) Yeah, that's very much what I have to do. Um, and then I've embraced the wheelchair and that has been a big source of freedom for me and at the beginning um I was just like absolutely no way because where I lived in 2020 I was sort of in a block of flats so the walk to the lift to then go down in the lift to then walk through the concierge no way could I have done that like I couldn't even walk to the lift Mm. and my girlfriend had suggested you know bring back the wheelchair for the second series and Every time she mentioned it, I would just cry. I would be like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And it actually felt almost like a phobia. Mm. It felt like a like my worst nightmare was knocking at the door and I just didn't want to open the door. But as the months rolled on, I kind of, I guess, thought, mm, maybe I do, maybe instead of just saying no, maybe I need to figure out a way to get around it. And it's quite funny, actually. So I had started like thinking okay maybe I need to speak to a therapist like maybe it is a matter of getting over this like fear and then when I saw the price tag I was like oh okay maybe not (laughs) um and because I was like furnishing my flat at the time when I saw to speak to a therapist it was going to be 70 great British pounds which I think is very worth it you know you can't put a price on the benefits that therapy can bring however I was thinking, well, it's probably going to be loads of sessions. Who knows what else they're going to dig up? It felt like a hefty price tag. I really wanted a rug at the time. And I thought, (laughs) do you know what? I'm going to coin my own form of therapy here. And it's going to be a carrot dangling sort of bribery system where if I go out in the wheelchair, I will buy myself the rug. Mm. And that was enough. Wow. (laughs) It's simple things for simple minds. So um eventually I did agree to it um I was like so I had like tears in my eyes I was so nervous it felt like such a big deal I actually had to have a shot of Jaeger just to sort of give me the Dutch courage which you know isn't some that you know that isn't medical advice but it did work for me um and my girlfriend pushed me out and I was really snappy with her and I wanted to just cry um but when I got out and I was like okay it's like actually I've blown it up massively in my head. It's actually not that bad. And it was actually just nice to be outside. Yeah. So yeah. Wow. When I had that 
realization I was like okay well actually there is scope for my quality of life to improve if I can get my head to a place where I can sort of adapt um so from that point I did start using the wheelchair and it's still at the time I think it it still was kind of scary and I've thought about it a lot and I've unpicked it and I think it's like if you're using a wheelchair, it's not an invisible illness anymore. People mm-hmm. can see that you have an illness. And with that comes the judgment. So I was thinking like, I don't want people that I work with to bump into me and then think I'm incapable of doing my job or that I'm lazy. Um, and I think I just didn't want to risk that stigma again. Jobs and stuff aren't everything. But for me, it felt like I'd worked so hard to build myself up from being at that point where no one would hire me because I was ill that I just didn't want to risk it but I've slowly sort of just come around to it and the way that I did that which is like what I mentioned before is I started following influencers that are openly disabled and I started reading books by disabled authors and listening to podcasts like your podcast where I can hear other people's experiences and hearing the similarities sort of validates mine and helps me to just like accept my disability as part of my identity. And it's been so much easier to absorb and get my head around thanks to seeing that representation because I think obviously it's like a bit better now than what it was when I first got ill, but there's still such a long way to go in terms of like disabled representation and not just a sad movie where someone's ill, like it needs to be someone that's ill but that's not the narrative they're just ill and they're also doing this and that um and I think that is the problem that I identify as like the thing that has caused me the most issues is it's the lack of um representation and so that's why I wanted to do my silly TikToks and three years ago over my dead body would I have thought well over my dead body would I thought I'd ever be on TikTok because I feel like (laughs) that's very Gen Z. Maybe, you know, it's not my world, but I forced my way into that world because I do just want to like pay it forward now because I've benefited so much. And I've also awoken to like the fact there's so many moving parts when you go out with any sort of access needs. There's so many things to worry about and there's so many pitfalls in how other people treat you and even how like places don't list their access needs so you can't find out if someone's accessible so you can like look at the frequently asked questions in a pub or a bar you can find out what you're allowed to wear whether they serve gluten-free food are dogs allowed is there a children's menu do you play football I can't know if I can even bloody get in the place. (laughs) So it seems like such a huge oversight and it makes me so angry. And I think actually it's quite a healthy way for me to channel my anger and frustrations that I have with my um, sort of everyday life into this sort of kind of, I do want to just fight this little battle where I think I just want to fight for things to be more accessible because anybody can become disabled at any point. So it's like in everybody's, best interest so it seems like a really obvious thing for people to do but I just yeah I can't get my head around it how behind it is considering I do think we are creeping forward with so many things now in in 2023 I think there's so much more awareness around mental health 
I think things have improved a lot for sexuality and things like that. Obviously, we've got a huge way to go, but it seems like disability and accessibility seems so far behind. And it's really hard to make people care. I think people care that are disabled, but we need people that aren't disabled to care or it's like never going to change. So I'm making that my thing at the moment and I will continue to do so. I hope that my health will improve and I'll have more energy to pump into it. But yeah, at the moment... I'm not really improving, but I think I've adapted my life and my quality of life has improved dramatically since I've been open to using a wheelchair. And like, you know, I think it, you always hope that it's going to be temporary, but I, and so you can put off kind of making these adjustments and hope that it will just pass. But I think I'm so happy that two years ago, I brought a wheelchair that I was more comfortable using and I've like sort of gone through the motions to have a power assist thingy. Mm-hmm which took ages. And I thought, well, I might not even need it by then, but I do really need it. So I'm like really, really pleased that I sort of did just do that because I thought future Isabel will be happy if she does still need it. And if she doesn't need it, like that's also a great outcome. Yeah. I relate to so much in your story. There's so much about it where we're like disease twins, the (laughs) sort of way that it has come and gone throughout your life and sort of defined the course of your life and the mental gymnastics that you've had to go through. You mentioned having some CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but from what I can tell, for the most part, you've just given that to yourself by sort of dangling carrots like a nice new rug in front of yourself, (laughs) giving yourself, you know, I'm going to take two steps and then three steps and then four steps. You know, that's a lot of the stuff that I'm told is done in cognitive behavioral therapy to help people adapt to situations like this. You seem incredibly adaptable. I also relate so much to what you're saying about putting a positive spin on your story that when you talk about it to people, it's like, oh, it was in the past and I'm better now and it's positive. But then when you're in the midst of it, you kind of go into this space where you're in your room lying down alone and you don't want to necessarily open up about it. You don't want to be seen as having an active illness. Uh, You want to either have an invisible illness or something that's past tense. And I went through this as well. And it gets to a point where it's like, you have to open up to the world about it. Otherwise, you are cloistering yourself away from the world. And it's just not good for your mental health. And you've made all those steps and all that progress. And it's so important to be fighting for improvement, fighting against the medical system, trying to find people to listen to, to take you seriously, which is such a battle. But also, it's so important to tend to your quality of life every day in the moment of each day to try to live the most rich, full life that you can. And there's always ways to find new adaptability to do that. And that's what I'm hearing from you is that that's the journey that you've been on. That mirrors my journey as well. It's so rewarding to hear you talk about it for me because you're giving me the thing that you're talking about getting from other people of like, this is my story and I'm going to start talking about it publicly so other people can know they're less alone. That's what it does for me just hearing you talk today. So it's I mean, really, really powerful to hear. What is next for you? Are you still battling doctors? Are you still trying to find a new avenue to pursue to try to figure out if there is a root cause behind all of this? In the UK, obviously, we are super fortunate to have the NHS. Obviously, that's great. However, it is quite a limited service, I think. 
Um, if you have something that's life-threatening or you're in a horrific accident, I think that NHS is amazing. But if you have a long sort of chronic illness that isn't life-threatening, I think it's really, really, really hard yeah. to make too much progress in terms of treatment. So there's like, I think, six types of medication that are potentially helpful for POTS patients. Um, and I have tried all of them. So mm. I feel like the medication that I'm on now is probably the best cocktail that I can find until something new comes around. And I'm still like sort of seeing doctors and specialists and stuff, but I would say that appointments only really roll around once a year. Mm. So it's not great and there's not loads of ideas, but I am sort of, it is something that I am trying to sort of make progress with because I do think there's more to uncover. There's still a lot of question marks and a lot of mystery. And I do think that there will be more clarity However, I don't feel like it's around the corner. It still feels like quite a way off. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I would love to pump more energy into chasing doctors, but I just don't have that energy to do it. I think I'm so fortunate that I'm still able to work. I don't want to sound like I'm surrendering to it. I would love to improve and I'm going to continue to keep pushing my boundaries within reason. Yeah, which is what you should do. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I know exactly what that feels like, where you just don't have the resources to pump into it, but you need to do it. So you do what you can. And that's exactly what you should yeah. do. No, exactly. So yeah, I think my priority is having a nice time over chasing doctors at the moment. Yeah. But I think I do reach a point every now and again where I'm like, okay, no, I feel like I'm ready to try and find some more solutions and like try something new. But I feel like I've tried so many things. That, yeah, I sort of, I don't want to think that I've run out of options, but at the moment, the last sort of medication that I tried, I found it so crushing when it didn't work for me because I was aware that it was one of the last ones. And that I felt so upset. It felt like I was like grieving the shortcut that I could have potentially found out of my situation. Mm. I felt like hopefully I'll still improve organically. But yeah, that shortcut option was sort of like road closed yeah. because this medication didn't work. So because that made me feel so sad, I've kicked it down the road now. I'm not going to think about it for a little while, I think. And I would say something else that I do want to flag. And obviously, I have put quite a positive spin on my story, but I'm so fortunate that I have a supportive partner. Yeah. I'm so fortunate that I'm able to work that has allowed me to feel like my life is still moving forward because I've still been able to have that kind of career progression whilst I'm still unwell. And I just wanted to flag that because I think that is huge amounts of privilege to have a supportive partner and to be able to work. And I think I would almost say that being able to work has taken the attention off the illness so much. And I think obviously I'm just very lucky that I have that. I don't want it to be like toxic positivity. Do you know what I mm. mean? Well, I think that recognizing when to be grateful is something that chronic illness teaches us how to do. And that's a really important life skill. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm so curious, this doctor that said that you had mast cell activation syndrome, what was the evidence that he was using for that diagnosis? So weirdly or not weirdly, I don't know. It seemed weird to me. So he was a urologist. So I have an overactive bladder but also I don't really flag that as something that causes me huge amounts of issue because I drink four litres 
a day to keep the blood pressure up. Mm. So of course it's going to come out, you know, what, what goes up must come down. Weirdly, my bladder is something that medical professionals are most excited about investigating. But uh. I keep saying to people, it's like the least of my problems. Can we explore, you know, the pots or like the blood pressure or the heart rate or something a bit more? But anyway, you know, we've all got our passion projects. And if if my bladder is theirs, you know, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a urologist. I had a phone appointment with him and I wasn't expecting it to be of any sort of significance. But then he asked me certain questions, and I guess I was saying the sort of mast cell kind of answers uh, because, like, other little things, like I have rhinitis, I have a kind of rash that he was very excited about, but I think because it was over the phone, he was perhaps imagining it different to what it actually is because hmm. he was saying, you know, if we were to do a biopsy on that, it would be full of mast cells, but I don't actually think that's the case. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he asked me a number of questions, and then he said, yeah, I think you do have – mast cell activation but yeah the treatment sort of didn't work and they actually he's been absolutely desperate to do a biopsy of my bladder and I was going to have it and then on the day when I turned up for my general anesthetic I was just so unwell because it was like very very early in the morning I wasn't allowed to drink any water or like take my medication I was also nervous yeah I was just sort of like passing out as I was in the waiting room and I was like do you know what I think I don't fancy this I'm mm. actually going to say this is not the right thing for me and I sort of stand by that and when I've spoken to my cardiologist and my pot specialist they're like oh yeah you shouldn't probably have a general anesthetic unless you really need it so yeah. and there are other ways I feel like I dodged a bullet there. Th that's I've never even heard of that for mast cell there are other ways to to do tests but like you said you know, the protocol not working is a huge red flag for that diagnosis. When I started on the low histamine diet, it was night and day. And everything I added in was night and day for, wow. for mast cell. Chromalin sodium in particular is the medication that I think is the most helpful. It's a mast cell stabilizer. But a lot of mast cell treatment centers on histamine because that's the best understood chemical that is released by mast cells, but there are over a thousand chemicals released by mast cells. Yeah. And the ratio of which chemical is released is going to dictate what your symptoms are. And we just don't know that much about almost all the others um, that yeah. can be released. So, but yeah, this is something I'd actually like to talk to you more about maybe off mic later um, <laughs> to kind yeah, of yeah, sure. drill down on the details of what you've experienced. But, you know, just to kind of sum up your experience that we've talked about and sum up this episode today, how do you feel about your journey? You know, you've, you've been on a real roller coaster and you have such a positive bubbly personality. And then you talk about like these years where you didn't even go to school, where you're just stuck in bed and things that would just crush people's souls to have to live through. But you seem so like well-balanced and positive and smiley and funny. And, you know, how do you feel about everything that you've been through? So... I would say, I mean, 100% it's been a journey and it's been a roller coaster and there's been like great highs and great, great lows. I would say when I was younger, I think there was a benefit in, I guess, children are really adaptable, right? So if you experience something from nine years old, maybe you don't have huge memories or life experiences before that. I think if it happened to me when I was sort of midway through adulthood or like in my early 20s, I think it would have been a totally different story. But I think the planets have aligned in a both horrible but also uh, easier way to consume uh, sort of way 
that has made it feasible for me to come out the other side, like feeling okay. I think the start of 2020, when my health declined, that was a real challenge. I think through that time as well, and ever since, it sort of made all my emotions bubble up. Whereas the well years, I was very sort of stoic. I didn't really like cry very often. And then sort of ever since the most recent relapse, I've been a lot more emotional, but I've also had the chance to probably like process my teenage years where I was, Mm. you know, just sort of bedridden. So I think I finally processed that and I do feel okay. Like how I feel at the moment is like, I do feel like my quality of life is okay. I think obviously it could be a lot better. I would love to not have to navigate the symptoms that I do. And I would love to have the freedom to like stay out for an extra drink or just decide that I want to go somewhere or just literally walk to the shop to buy myself a treat. I would love that. But whilst I can't do that, I'm really enjoying everything that I can do. And I think I have to just give some nods to the elements of my life that I'm really, really lucky for. And that is my partner is super supportive. My like friends are amazing. You know, shout out to my dog, Jonathan, as well, um, (laughs) who's extra serotonin boost on a daily basis. Again, I'm really, really fortunate that I can still work. So I do have a lot to be grateful for. I don't really know how I stay positive because I think there's so many reasons in the world to like feel like shit, let alone, you know, if you're ill on top of that. And, you know, maybe it's all going to come crashing down for me again emotionally um, at some point in the near future. But I would say at the moment, I feel so empowered by the turnaround that I've had about my disability. And now I finally feel like I am at a point of self-acceptance. Mm. I feel like quite proud of myself for like where I am today. And I think that does like power me up even more. But yeah, it's been a it has been a roller coaster. But at this point in time, I, I do feel very positive. And I I do feel like even though it's not the life that I would choose for myself in terms of my limitations and my illness, I am still like happy with it. Mm. Coming to terms with my disability, obviously I didn't think this initially, but now you know, I'm not going to sign off this chapter of my life and look to the future of the point where maybe I'm recovered. I'm not going to say like, oh, maybe I can do that in a year's time when I'm recovered. I'm going to think, okay, well, actually, what can I do now? And then find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yes, again, absolutely. that all does give nods to like privilege and stuff because it's sometimes it's not as easy as that. Well, you're you're preaching like the main points that I like to talk about on the podcast, which is live for the moment, find ways to be happy now, and you can have a rich, happy life with a disability. Like These are things that are foundational to why I make this podcast, is spreading that information because it is so valuable. Yeah, for sure. You can't just write off a chapter of your life. Yeah. Um, And I think my teens were totally written off because I couldn't do anything or hadn't found ways to do things. Um, and so I'm just, and I think when you're younger, you think you've got your whole life. You think, oh, it doesn't matter if I waste a couple of years, not to say that I wasted them, but it, it, there's less value in years when you're younger. Cause you think you're going to live forever. But now I'm 35, even though I'm obviously still extremely young, I don't feel like I have as much time ahead of me. Like it's not indefinite, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I just feel a bit more like I want to make the most of, of the time that I have. Absolutely. I have one more question for you. If you could go back in time and talk to your nine-year-old self, 
who's about to get sick with this virus and your life is about to change, based off everything you've learned, what message would you share with yourself? Mm, I would say do another lap around the block on your bike because it's probably going to be the last one. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, do you know what? I think ignorance is bliss in mm. that time. I would have, it would have been heartbreaking to share any sort of glimmer of what was lying ahead for me. But I would say just keep going. Yeah. And also like all the people that, you know, the negativity that everybody faces when they're ill or, you know, any sort of marginalized community faces. I think you just have to like back yourself and keep going. That's what I would say. But it's much easier to say than to do, I would say as well. Absolutely. And we just have to live through it and learn how. Please tell our audience where we can go to connect with you online to find your amazing content, which I love so much on TikTok. Plug anything you'd like to share. Okay, well, since we've been raving about TikTok, my TikTok handle is Isabelly Welly, I-S-O-B-E-L-L-Y-W-E-L-L-Y, with a zero for the O. It's not the most catchiest handle, but I just, I wanted it to be similar to my Instagram handle, which is also Isabelly And if you follow me on TikTok, you're in for a limited series of the ramp of approval where i will try to award venues and bars and pubs the ramp of approval um it's still in its early stages um but i'm going to keep doing it and the more i do it the easier it gets as well in fact i would encourage anybody to just go on tiktok and just rip the band-aid off and just post a video because mm. i think when people message you and say they really like your content and, you know, you can reach people that are, you know, navigating something similar, whether it's an illness or like anything, I think that's the way we find a solution. That's the way we get the representation that we need, because I think you just can't find any sort of positive representation for chronic illness. And I understand why, because it isn't really a positive thing, but when you have to live with it, you do have to just make it a positive. And there are positives that come out of it. The way that it shapes your own sense of gratitude for the things that are good in your life is a huge one. Learning how to live your life in a way where you're happy in the moment is a huge one. So all of these things are so incredibly valuable. And I can tell that you've learned some of those lessons along the way. I'm so impressed with your resilience and ability to just keep on fighting through this thing. I know exactly what you're going through, you know, it, it's so similar to what I've lived through. And it makes it feel so unfair that I, I'm finding improvement. I want you to find improvement too. And I do want to pick your brain a little bit about mast cell stuff since I have that diagnosis. I do that a lot on this podcast, so I won't make our listeners listen to that. No, no. And I think, you know, you shouldn't feel bad for finding a source of improvement. Hmm. Um, I think we've all just got to take what we, what we can get and not think twice about it because, Beggars can't be choosers. We've got to just yeah. take it. <laughs> I just want, I want it for everyone. You know, that's part of why yeah. I do this podcast is every little tidbit we get from every story could be that piece of information that kind of triggers something into place for someone else to know what to try next. And I, I yeah. want to know what you try next. So please stay in touch. You know, I bring people back once a year for update episodes. I would love to include you in that. If there's ever anything you want to share, let me know. You've done an incredible job sharing your story. I've loved talking to you today. And I really appreciate you sharing your time and your story with us on the podcast. You are so welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. And 
as I said before, you're amazing at what you do. And I think this is another example of a really positive outcome from, I mean, I feel like I sound like I'm some sort of chronic illness pyramid seller, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say some of the things in my life that I love the most have been a result of what were originally negatives yeah. in my illness. So I think you do just have to suck it up and wait it out because things do come around and obviously you know maybe if you hadn't have become ill you would have done a podcast about something else but the chances are you probably wouldn't have and so it's led you on this path that you're like really really good at thank you so much i did used to podcast about science fiction <laughs> which i loved but my illness kind of took me in a different direction and i mean don't get me wrong i had i love my sci-fi podcast i miss it but talking about how much i love star trek is not the same as talking about learning how to live with a disability or learning how to live with chronic illness and finding joy through it, which, you know, for me is a life-changing thing to talk about. But so is Star Trek, but it's different. You get what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's still, it's all, you know, working towards a very niche audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been such a joy. I've had such a blast talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.